Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. We're glad you could join us today here at Rock Fellowship. Um, if you don't know, this past week we're going through a series. And last week we started a series called I'm Going Through Something. Um, and the, the theme of the series is for, as the title would say, anyone that is currently going through some sort of struggle in life, whether you're struggling with an emotional thing, a mental thing, maybe it's the financial struggle you have, a relational struggle you have. But for anyone that's struggling through something right now, this series is for you. And you may have thought last week, well, I get it. This is, I get that this is a good sermon to have. There are a lot of people that are struggling to do something. But me personally, I'm good. Like, praise the Lord. I'm in a good place right now. I'm not really going through anything. If that's you, I just want to add, there's a few more people that fit in this category of who this sermon is for, who this series is for. It's really for anyone that is either currently going through something, just got out of going through something, may not know that you're about to go through something, or that knows someone that is currently going through something. And I feel like out of those four categories, we got about 95 people, of people like, that are paying attention right now. You know someone or you are someone that's in one of those four categories. You either are going through something, you're about to, just got out of, or one of your loved ones, a family member or a friend, you know someone that is struggling and going through something. If that's for you, and that's you, um, this series is largely for you. And the thing that Pastor Chris talked about earlier um, as kind of like a preface and kind of a disclaimer is, this series is not really going to fix that problem for you. And we talked about how nowhere in, in the realm and theology of Christianity does Jesus ever promise, if you follow me, your life will be easy. If you follow me, all of, your, all of your problems will go away. If anything, there are more verses that point towards the other end of the spectrum, that if you follow me, a lot of hard things might happen to you. So this series, I want to preface by saying, we're not going to solve any of your problems. If you have money problems, relationship problems, depression, loneliness, anxiety, I'm not going to give that one liner that'll like instantly solve all your problems. That's not really what's going to happen today. But it's largely on two things. One of that is what can the church do? What can we as this community, what can we as Rock Fellowship do to help someone that is going through these times? And the three kind of aspects we're looking at are what permission can we give, what perspective can we offer, and how can we offer our presence for someone that is going through these times. So a recap of last week, Pastor Chris introduced the series um, by talking about that famous story in the Bible where Jesus is with his disciples and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee and this crazy storm happens. And the disciples are fearing for their life as Jesus is asleep in the boat. And after, you know, a few hours, of who knows how long of efforts, they wake Jesus up with this question. Jesus, master, teacher, rabbi, do you not care if we drown? And Jesus wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and is immediately calm. And then he asks them, do you have no faith? Or as the quote, maybe you guys are more familiar with, oh, ye of little faith, do you not have faith? Do you not believe? Why are you so afraid? And the reason um, that we can be in those situations in the storm and we can not be afraid when we have Jesus, and as Pastor Chris talked about, is the reality and the perspective that we need to keep in mind throughout this series is that when you're with Jesus, when you're a follower of Jesus, the thing that you're going through, the something that you're going through right now does not define your end, and that is not the last chapter of your story. And the reality is, when you follow Jesus, he's the one that gets to write the end of your story, and there's more to come in this life and the one next. So for this week, um, in this part of the series, Pastor Chris prefaced by saying it's probably the most practical. Um, we'll, we'll see how this sermon goes, whether it's not practical for you. But I want to start by asking this question. And this is more pertinent. Whether or not you grew up in the church, you most likely have an answer to this question. And I want you to all close your eyes. And I want you to picture Jesus. Just picture Jesus in your head right now. I'm not going to ask just 
Think of the person of Jesus, not like something he's doing, but if I were to ask you, picture Jesus, the human that was born in Bethlehem, the Nazarite, if I were to picture him in your head, what comes to mind? Now, for most of you, even if you grew up in church, especially if you grew up in church, you picture um, a man, maybe in like his like 30s-ish, give or take, with long, flowy, not frizzy, kind of like curly, panting commercial hair. He's got a full beard. Um, he's very, like, for lack of a better word, he's got a very gentle look on his face. He's got a staff in his hand. He's either sitting, and if he's sitting, he's got like a five-year-old child on his left thigh. He's got a lamb in his lap, and he's like staring right at the cameraman, and he's got his arms open, and there's a quote on the bottom that says, you know, come to me, all who are weary, or let the children come, right? For most of you, whether or not you grew up in church, if I ask you to picture Jesus, Jesus, the person, Jesus Christ, in your head, there's probably a lot of similarities there, right? Most of us are picturing roughly the same person, right? Either he's either sitting or maybe you picture him with his arms open and like heaven is open behind him and there are angels streaming in line next to him. But most of us have a pretty similar image of Jesus. Now, I want you to close your eyes and picture what comes to mind when I ask you to picture whatever your definition of the Old Testament God is. Yahweh, I am, whatever you want to call him. Close your eyes and picture the Old Testament God in your mind. You can think of an iconic scene if that helps you. I think a lot of us, that's probably the first thing we're thinking of. And now, you can open your eyes, and I know some of you are thinking, I thought of the same person. Okay, and if that's you, just humor me for a second. And I know that technically, if you grew up in church, at some point you were probably told, it's the same person. But for the purposes of this exercise, um, I imagine that most of us, especially if you grew up in the church, probably have a different image when I ask you to think of Jesus, the person of Jesus in your mind. We all think of a very similar looking guy, long hair, beard with a staff, um, with a very gentle look on his face. And if I ask you to think of this Old Testament God, right, Yahweh, I am, whatever you want to call him, most of us probably thought of not that. Most of us probably, I don't know what you think of, but when I did this exercise for myself, I think of a black cloud. When I think of God of the Old Testament, I think of a black cloud on top of a mountain, a lot of thunder and lightning and a deep booming voice with a lot of reverb. And he's not shouting, but he's giving very solemn commands at people. And the reality is, um, if you grew up in church, naturally, through the stories you heard about the Old Testament God and New Testament God and, you know, God interacting with the prophets and Abraham and Moses versus Jesus walking with the disciples, very naturally, most of us probably grew up with, like, two slightly different images of this God. And then at some point maybe around junior high, high school, when you enter the youth, you either heard a sermon from a pastor, you're a Bible teacher, or in a Sabbath school, someone told you, actually, it's the same dude. That guy in the Old Testament and that person in the New Testament is the exact same person. And if you were like me, when I first heard that, I was like, got it, okay, but not really. Like, I get that that's the right answer for like the Bible trivia game we're about to play, but honestly, it's, I have a hard time reconciling those two images because for most of us, when I asked you to think of this Old Testament God, most of us didn't even think of a person. We thought of like a voice or like a light, some sort of like inanimate object, whether it's a cloud or a light or like a lightning bolt or a pillar of fire. It's hard to imagine that person as an actual human being. He's more of like a force, an omniscient narrator, like just this voice in the sky. And the reason I want to ask this question um, and kind of address this tension between like this Old Testament version of God that we think of that we know is technically the same person versus this New Testament version of God is that you know most likely theoretically they're the same person. But if I were to ask you, who would you tell your deepest, darkest secret to? 
100% Jesus, right? 100% I'm going to tell Jesus my deepest, darkest secret. I feel like he'd be a little more understanding, a little nicer, a little more like forgiving versus I don't know, because the Old Testament God might like shame me a little bit and be like, what is wrong with you, right? So given those two perspectives in mind, I want to go in this series, in this part of the series, what I want to talk about is this idea of this Old Testament God and kind of like kind of coalesce the tension between these two. But like what is his response this force in the sky, what is his response to someone that is currently going through something? When you come to that Old Testament, this force, this cloud in the sky, and you tell him, hey, God, I am going through depression, anxiety, loneliness, financial trouble, relationship trouble, how does that seemingly impersonal force respond to you? And I imagine for some of us, the reason I ask that question is because if you grew up in the church, there may be a certain level of, like, I don't want to say shame, but maybe it's shame or like embarrassment to bring that to God, right? Ah, is this really the right thing? Should I really be having these feelings? If I truly had faith in God, if I truly believed in scripture, if I truly had a relationship with God, how could I honestly say that I'm lonely? Shouldn't having a relationship with God fulfill my social needs? If I truly had a relationship with God, then how can I say like I'm suffering from depression or a loss loss of hope? Shouldn't Jesus be my hope? If I truly had that, then I feel like I shouldn't be having these feelings. And if I truly understood in my heart, in my soul, in my mind, intellectually, that God is real, I have a relationship with him, he loves me, and he's my living hope, how can I reconcile that with the feelings and the emotion and the circumstance that I'm going going through with now? And I feel like for a lot of us, if you are going through something and you grew up in that church with that understanding, there may be a small amount of that kind of tension where you're like, I do feel this but I feel like I shouldn't because like, am I not supposed to have faith? Should I not know that this is not the end? And if you're in that situation, I'm glad you came to church today because I'm hoping through this scripture um, that we can talk about that tension. But I wanna start by opening up with prayer and we'll go into our scripture for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I wanna thank you so much for this um, opportunity where I can come and share your word. Father, I ask that at this time, Lord, I put this message in your hands, Father Lord. You know who needs to hear it. You know who this message is for. And Father, I ask that all these words that are spoken through me now um, be not mine but yours, Father. May this worship, may the words of my mouth, may the hearts and souls of everyone that's listening, whether in this room or through online, be pleasing to you, Father. Soften hearts that need to be softened, Lord. Open ears that need to be opened. Father, speak through me. Praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So currently, um, in our Wednesday night youth small group, so if you don't know, every Wednesday night, uh, most of our junior high and high school kids will meet in the room on the other side of that wall in the chapel, and we'll do a small group. And we usually go through series in that small group, and the series we're currently going through is a series called Humans of Scripture. And it's essentially a play on, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Humans of New York was a really trendy topic. If you don't remember, there's this guy going around um, on Instagram taking portrait pictures of people in the city of New York and then writing their story in the caption. And it became a very big deal. He wrote a book. It was a New York Times bestseller. And it was essentially the concept of that was basically like people have stories and people aren't very one-dimensional. There's a lot going on behind just that random face you see. On the street. And the tension that our series, Humans of Scripture, and our youth small groups is dealing with is that a lot of times Bible characters are really portrayed as fairly one dimensional, right? There are good guys and there are bad guys. The good Bible characters are role models. You want to be like them. The bad Bible characters are like troubled children that you don't want to be like, right? David, good. Saul, bad. Solomon, good, then bad. Paul, Saul, bad, then good. Jesus, good. Judas, bad. Peter, good right? Noah good, Abraham good. And a lot of them, especially if you grew up just listening to like their most famous stories, can seem very one-dimensional. That's a good guy. That's a bad guy. That's a good guy. 
But if you really read through an entire story of someone in Scripture, you realize that there are a lot of good guys in the Bible, good role models, that do some unsavory things. And there are a lot of bad guys in the Bible that have very relatable stories and struggles. And despite the fact that they may have messed up and sinned and disobeyed, a lot of times you can't help but like kind of feel for them and kind of relate. I have gone through that before. And there are a lot of good guys that you're like, what were you doing? And so today, the person we're going to look at is um, the story of someone that's, for all intents and purposes, is arguably one of the greatest Bible characters in the Bible. His resume is insane. He's an awesome person. He did amazing things for God. He was a prophet of God. But the story we're going to look at is this great person's lowest point in their life. This amazing person who did one of the craziest miracles in the Bible also gets to put on his resume that he never actually dies, is a prophet of God, yet what did the lowest point in his life look like? And how did God respond to this person when he was at his lowest point? And when he couldn't see the end, and when he was going through something so bad that he asks God to just take his life because clearly I'm not doing anything worthwhile right now. And the person we're going to look at is Elijah. And the story we're going to focus on is Elijah, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And this passage is the lowest point in Elijah's life. But to add context, you need to go one chapter previous. And 1 Kings chapter 18 is probably the highlight of Elijah's life. It's, if at the end of your life you get to see a highlight reel of everything you did, this is probably the greatest moment of Elijah's life. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, um, to set some context, um, Elijah is a prophet of God, and he's serving um, during the reign of Israel when um, Israel and Judah have split into two separate countries. So the northern kingdom of Israel versus the southern king, kingdom of Judah. And uh, Elijah is serving as a prophet for the northern nation, and he's serving under the reign of King Ahab. King Ahab is currently the king of Israel, and the interesting thing about King Ahab is that he married a pagan wife by the name of Jezebel. And this pagan wife had a lot of influence and essentially ran the show for his kingdom. She had a lot of influence on the decisions that he made, on the culture of Israel, and the direction of the religious and spirituality of the nation of Israel. And so you can tell, like, that should tell you a lot about where the nation of Israel is at right now. The fact that the leader of God's people has married a pagan wife and she is calling all the shots, right? It tells you a lot about what Elijah is working with right now. And it's in that circumstance that God has tasked Elijah with the mission I want you to get these people to come back to me. Through whatever means I deem necessary, I want you to talk to the king, to these people, perform these signs, but your job is to get Israel to come back to me, to repent and realize what they've been doing, to turn away from the idolatry, and essentially reform the nation of Israel. So that's Elijah's role. That's his job description. That's what God has called him to do. And so as a part of that, what he does is he arranges for this showdown to take place. So during this time, Israel is essentially... A pagan nation. No one's really out here worshiping God. Baal is kind of the person to follow. So Jezebel follows Baal, and so most of Israel is following and worshiping this false god by the name of Baal. So Baal is a huge following in Israel, and Elijah at this point, since Jezebel came to power, she kind of started this campaign of persecution of basically any prophet of God will be put to death. So as far as Elijah is concerned, he is the only survivor from that group. All of his colleagues, all of his peers have been killed off by the most powerful person in the land. So he's alone, and he's basically making like a last stand for God. So what he arranges for is essentially a competition between him as a lone representation of Yahweh against all these 450 prophets of Baal. So what he, what he does is this. He sends a flyer out and basically invites all of Israel to Mount Carmel. And once everyone comes, there's this huge audience, and it's him, 
versus 450 prophets of Baal, and it's in front of everyone here that he sets basically the rules of this game or competition. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create two altars, have two bulls, and two sacrifices on top, of, on top of these altars. The only rule is you cannot actually light this on fire. So typically in a sacrifice, you would bring an animal, and then you would burn that animal on that altar uh, as an offering to your god. So we'll do all the steps, except you cannot light this actual wood on fire. Your job is to get your god to light this offering on fire. And he says, because I'm the underdog, you guys can go first. So the story goes, at the beginning of the day, from morning till noon, 450 prophets of Baal are dancing around, crying out to Baal, please hear us, light this altar on fire, right? Several hours have gone by, right? They're probably exhausted. They're dancing, they're cheering. <laughs> At noon, Elijah's like, all right, instead of calling it like you guys should stop, he starts talking smack. He's like, hey, maybe Baal is using the bathroom. Maybe he's like hard of hearing. You need to yell louder. Like, oh, you know, like, Try a little harder. I'm sure he'll hear you eventually, right? And these guys are like dancing and like, I'm sure it's like very embarrassing at this point, right? They're like, the king is watching. There's a huge audience. Essentially, Elijah's saying, nation of Israel, you be the judge. Is this the God you follow or is it going to be mine? And so 450 guys dancing around and you got this lone prophet just talking smack in the corner. They're like drenched in sweat. They're probably not eating or drinking anything. And right around noon, they're like, all right, we've got to step it up, right? We've got we to do something. The king is watching. If, we don't, if this doesn't happen, we're all probably going to die anyway. So they start cutting themselves. Right now, blood is gushing out for, for like, till the evening sacrifice is how long he gave them. So from the morning till noon to the evening sacrifice, he's just watching these people dance around, yell, shout. I'm sure they're passing out from blood loss at this point. Like, it's a, it's a mess, right? And he waits until the evening sacrifice, and he looks around, and he's like, all right, I think we've had enough here. So he says, all right. If I may, you guys have had all day, let me go. And so what he does is this. He rearranges, at this point, his altar has been ruined because they're dancing around, they knock stuff over. So he rearranges the altar. He gets 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He puts the wood on top. He puts the cow on top. And then, in an unconventional method, he does this. He digs a ditch around that altar. And then he asks, get four large jugs, fill them with water, and then dump it on the altar which is not something you typically do. And remember, the objective is to light this thing on fire. Four jugs of water. And he says, all right, do it again, and do it again. So three times, they're dumping, this, they're dumping all this water on this altar to the point where the Bible says at the end, the entire ditch surrounding the altar was now covered with water. The wood is soaked. The offering is wet. The stones are drenched. And it's at this point that he prays out to God. And he prays out to God, and it's a very simple prayer. He says, O God, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know, O Lord, you are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And immediately after he prays, fire flashes from heaven and engulfs the entire altar in flames. And because of that, it's so strong and so intense that all the water instantly evaporates and it's all charred. Everything is gone. And in that moment, how could you possibly deny, all right, there is very clearly a winner here, right? And Elijah's like, I don't know, given like his talk of like, you know, talking smack and stuff, I imagine he's like kind of like smiling a little smugly, like, what did I say, 
right? Instantaneously. People are waiting all day for these prophets of Baal, dancing around, nothing happens. This guy, this man of God prays, and immediately after his prayer, fire falls from heaven and engulfs the entire altar. And at that point, it's pretty much undeniable. Okay, well, I think we have a winner here. And in that moment, everyone watching like rejoices, hip, hip, hooray, and they acknowledge God as a savior, and they get rid of those false prophets of Baal. And the story ends happily ever after, and Israel is reformed. Unfortunately, I'm sure that's what Elijah thought would happen. Unfortunately, that's not actually what happens. What happens afterwards is after the drought ends, the drought's been going on, and after the drought ends, um, Ahab goes back home, and then he tells Jezebel, this is what happened. It was pretty embarrassing, but Elijah basically made us all look really bad. And he tells Jezebel this, and when Jezebel hears this, her response is to say, well, then we've got to kill Elijah. That's, that's clearly the answer here. And so she puts out a death threat against Elijah, basically telling him, I will make sure you are dead by tomorrow. And so he hears this, and he runs for his life. And this is the part of the story where everything in Elijah's life, he goes from the highest point possible, where he literally conjured fire from heaven. The disciples didn't even get to do that. They asked Jesus, and he's like, no, that's not you. He calls fire out of heaven. He, looks, he gets to look really cool in front of all these people. He essentially proves to the entire nation of Israel, I represent the one true God. I am his representative. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, O God, the Lord is one. Look at this. Look at what he's done. And yet, 24 hours later, he finds himself in the middle of the wilderness, alone, under whatever a broom tree is, and he's all by himself, and he's a wanted man. And you can't help but wonder, if you're in Elijah's shoes, where did it all go wrong? Another way I think he, he might have kind of processed this information was, what was the point of all of this? What was the point of my ministry? What is the point of my life? What is the point of me? And remember, through these past three years, he's been a wanted man. He's been hiding out. The only reason he survived is because he's been hiding out in the wilderness. He's not out in public. He's not some celebrity. He's the wanted re like refugee hiding in the middle of nowhere. He makes one appearance. He makes this grand, awesome performance of God's power. And now he's back to hiding again. And nothing has changed for Elijah. He's still alone. The nation of Israel still does not believe in God, will refuse to acknowledge God, still worships these false idols, and he's still under a death threat. You can't help but wonder for him, what was the point? What, what am I doing here, God? Like, why did you have me do all this? Am I even a prophet? Like, no one is listening to me. Nobody cares what's going on. And that discouraging thought of like, does anybody even care about what I'm doing? I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before where you've either been in a relationship where you feel like you're the only person that cares, you've been in a, maybe leading a team or a group at work, and you feel like you're the only one pouring your heart and soul into this passion project of yours or at work, and like nobody seems to care. Or maybe you've been leading a ministry at church or some other place, and you've been pouring your heart and soul out to serve other people, and it feels like you're the only person that cares, and that everyone is like, oh, thank you for what you're doing, or maybe doesn't even acknowledge what you're doing. Um, but you're toiling away, you're stressing out, blood, sweat, and tears into this thing, and you look around one day and you ask yourself, am I the only person that cares about this? Am I the only person that has a heart for this? Am I the only person that's putting in this time and effort only to bear no fruits? And I imagine that's a lot of what Elijah thought at this point, because he's sitting there, and the prayer that he prays to God, in this moment of like, total isolation and loneliness. Not simply like, of course he's isolated in the sense that he has no friends. All of them are dead. He has no family that he keeps in touch with. He has no colleagues. He has no other people that even share his beliefs. He's truly 
physically alone. And not only is alone, like, is he alone from a social standpoint or a spiritual standpoint, he's alone in, like, a purpose standpoint. Nobody else cares about what he cares about, right? He's spent his whole life serving this purpose of, I need to get Israel to repent. Like, remember what God has done for you. And he's preaching and putting on these shows and hiding from authorities and all this stuff. And at the end of the day, nothing has changed. And he has nothing to show for it. If you were his employer and he was your employee, by all intents and purposes, by all metrics, this man has failed. He's used all these resources. He's done all these different tactics, but nothing has changed. No one is converting. The king and queen still run, run the nation as a pagan nation. Sure, there was a small moment of hurrah after the fire came down, but what changed? There were no new laws. There was no religious reform. He's still a wanted man. He's exactly where he was just before Mount Carmel. Alone, wanted, and nothing to show for it, really. And this is the heart of Elijah, this great man, this great prophet of God, at his lowest point, in the middle of a wilderness, no food, no water, no friends, no family, alone under some shrub. And this is what God, this is what he tells God in his moment. And this is, we've talked about this before, this is essentially his prayer of lament. This is what he tells him. I have had enough, Lord. I have had enough. I cannot do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I see no hope. What what am I even doing, God? You tell me. I've been following your commands all this time. I've been struggling and striving to do the right thing, to be the right person, be that nice guy, to follow you, even when it was hard. But I can't do this anymore. And the second sentence is even harder. He says, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. I can't do it anymore. I've had enough. If you're someone in here that's struggling with burnout or exhaustion, or really to take the second half of his sentence, the statement of the reason he says that second half, like, just take my life, Lord, for I'm just like my ancestors before me who are dead. He's basically saying, like, I might as well be dead. I haven't done anything. I have no hope. I don't see how this can change, God. I've done all this stuff, and I'm frustratingly in this spot where I feel like, what am I supposed to do? How can, this, how can this nation change? God, you've called me to do this thing, and I feel like, frankly, even though you're a God, all things are possible, I feel like this is impossible. I don't see how my, how my situation can be better. Just end it, God. There's no point for me anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm burnt out. I'm lonely, and I don't see how anything is going to change. And that's what he tells God. So again, if you're struggling with any of those symptoms, this guy's your guy. I feel like Elijah, with the stuff he's going through, like depression, loneliness, stress, hopelessness, like he would fit right in inside today. All the stuff you heard about people struggling with, Elijah, all at once in this moment. And he brings this to God. And I feel like for me, reading this, it's very curious. So what does God, this impersonal force in the sky, this cloud, this light source, this, this command giver, how does he respond when his servant Elijah comes to him in vulnerability and says, just end me, God. It's not worth following you like this anymore because I'm done. I'm exhausted. And in this prayer, after he prays it, there's no response from God. Um, probably from, you know, the emotional exhaustion he's experienced in the last few days and the stress, he takes a nap. He takes a nap, and he wakes from this nap with an angel tapping him on his shoulder and says, hey, get up, eat. And he looks around, and next to his head, um, there's some freshly baked bread and some water. So he eats the bread, drinks the water, and he gets food, comes and goes back to sleep. And then again, 
An angel comes a little bit later. We don't know how much time he slept for, but probably a substantial amount of time. An angel taps him again, wakes him up, says, hey, wake up, eat, for the journey ahead of you is going to be really long. So eat some more bread, drink some more water. And then he goes on a trip for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, which is about a 200-mile hike, walk, whatever you want to call it. Right? So he goes from there, eating, he goes sleep, eat, sleep, eat, walk 200 miles to Mount Horeb. 40 days and 40 nights. And when he gets to Mount Horeb, he finds a cave, and he sleeps in that cave again. Right? Which sounds like someone that's like, ah, sounds like someone that's depressed. Right? You eat, sleep, eat, sleep, takes a walk, and sleeps again. Right? And for you, the Mount Horeb, the name Horeb might not have much significance. But actually, another name for Horeb is Sinai. And so he's going to Mount Sinai 40 days, 40 nights. And if you're reading the Bible, you're like, oh, this, I've seen this somewhere before, right? It's a little bit of flashback moment where he's going to this man of God, this person of God is coming to the presence of God at Mount Sinai. And now it's like the table has been set. Oh, I know this story. I know. When I, honestly, when I picture the Old Testament God, I picture Mount Sinai. I picture black cloud on top of a mountain, thunderbolt, lightning, very, very frightening, loud voice, booming, and just like shout some commands down at him, right? And like, you know this story. You have an idea of what, what's going to happen here. And he goes to this cave. And he goes to this cave and he sleeps. And then he wakes up from this sleep and God asks him a question. And his question is simply this. And this is the first time God is like directly engaged. Right? Now we're like, what is his response? What is God going to say to this servant that for all intents and purposes feels like he's failed? This is what God asks him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah? And you're like, ah, I knew it. That's like the most insensitive thing you could ask. Didn't you kind of send him here? Like, I feel like he's here to see you, God. He's got no friends. He's got no family. Who's he supposed to go to, right? He's got no colleagues. Like, he's here to see you. Like, can you solve this problem for him? So he asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, and, I, you know, he's probably fed up at this point, and he essentially vents to God. And this is his prayer of lament, his honest response to God as to why he's here and what he's going through. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Which is essentially his life in a few sentences. God, I feel like I've done the right thing up until now. I have zealously, not holding back, committed to serving you. I've done what you told me to do, how you told me to do it, when you told me to do it. I've done it alone. I've done it for a while now. But here's the situation. They're still serving Baal. They've torn down the altars to you. Nobody cares. That's why I'm here, God. That's what I'm going through. Me, Elijah, your only prophet, the only person that cares about you right now, God, the only person in this nation that has turned their back to you, that's still coming to you, doing the right thing, wanting to do the right thing and turn to you, that's where I'm at right now. That's my situation. They're trying to kill me too. And then God tells Elijah, Go stand in front of my presence. And so again, you get this, there's a strong parallel with what Moses went through on Mount Sinai and, and what Elijah goes through. He's all right. So he stands out on this mountain, and there's this really strong, mighty wind. It said it tore up the rocks. It was so strong. And then following that, there's this mighty earthquake that shakes the ground. And there's this huge fire. And instinctively, Scripture tells us that Elijah just realizes, okay, these are just things. And he doesn't recognize any of these forces to be God until there's a small, gentle whisper. And instinctively, he realizes this is the presence of God. And he covers his head, and he goes out to meet God in this moment. And this is what God tells him to do. He says, 
I get that you walked 200 miles to get here, but I want you to go back to where you just came from. Here are two kings I want you to anoint. There are 7,000 other people that have not been, that have not bent their knee to Baal, and they're just like you, and they still worship me and our allegiance, and swore their allegiance to me. That's it. Oh, and he also tells them, there's this guy named Elisha. He's like an up-and-coming, like, rookie kind of dude. I want you to take care of him. He's like, he's going to take over you in a little bit. And the, the chapter ends with sort of this epilogue chapter where Elijah goes and he finds this Elisha guy. And he's in a field and he just puts his cloak over him and says, you're coming with me now. And that's how chapter, nine, or chapter 19 ends. And the story of the darkest chapter of Elijah's life ends with that. Now, to be honest, if you've heard this, you might be thinking, so what is God's response? Like, how, so how does God respond to someone that comes like this? And I think when you read this passage and just focus on what God says, it's really easy to miss where God's heart is in all this. And I think when you look at it from the, from the perspective of what does God do to and for Elijah, and what does God not say to Elijah during this time, it paints a much clearer picture of who God is. So break down like a spark note summary of what God does for him. Let's him nap, gives him food, Let's him nap some more, gives him more food, tells him to go on a walk, right? So food, exercise, and rest. And I'm not saying that these are like the cure for depression or loneliness, but I, I think it's interesting to point out like how practical God's like plan for him was, right? It, there was no sense of like, in God's response to Elijah, there's no sense of like, how dare you? Like, are you kidding me? Like, how could, oh, ye of little faith, what's wrong with you? He says, take a nap. Here's some food, get some exercise. And despite the fact that God as a, as a being doesn't need any of these things, God doesn't need food, God doesn't need rest, God doesn't need exercise, he has leveraged his omniscience and his power enough to realize and recognize this human being who has no needs that I have needs these things. Let me take care of your needs first. Let me come down to your level. And hey, if I were in your shoes, I'm not, but I can put myself enough in your shoes to realize I think this would be pretty good for you. Get some rest. Here's some food. Go on a walk. Here's what God doesn't say. He doesn't tell Elijah that, hey, you should be happy that at least you're alive. Hey, man, I get all the, that all these other prophets are dead, but I've kept you alive. Praise the Lord, right? He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't rebuke Elijah and tell him, how can you be lonely? You have me. Like, don't you have a, you're talking with me right now. How dare you say that you're lonely to the one person that's talking to you? There's no sense of rebuke, and arguably the biggest surprise is there's no mention of, like, a lack of faith. There's no mention of, arguably, this response is much gentler than the New Testament Jesus version response where he tells his disciples, oh, ye of little faith. There's no mention of, how can you not believe? Like, I've done so much for you. And Ellen White adds an interesting extended commentary when she says, but he who had been blessed, so talking about Elijah, but he who had been blessed with so many evidences of God's loving care was not above the frailties of mankind. And in his dark hour, his faith and courage forsook him. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes. You literally just saw God bring fire from the sky. You've performed miracles. Before that, you went to a widow's house and you gave her unlimited food. You raised dead people to life. What more evidence do you need that God is in your corner? What more? None of us, most of us haven't had a third of those things happen to us. I've never, I've never brought a dead person to life. I've never brought fire from the sky. I've never done any of those things. Elijah had all those, things, all those three things happen in the span of like a year or two. And yet he comes to God and says, God, what? I can't. This is hard. And in that moment, despite everything that God has already done for him, God doesn't, doesn't bring any of that stuff up. 
There's no record of wrong. There's no, hey, remember that one time I did that for you and that? Like, shouldn't you not be feeling this way? There's no mention of that at all. And again, I think it's very interesting when you read this passage at what God does not say versus what you might have thought God in his position might have said to someone. And I don't know if you've ever been in those shoes before where someone comes to you with a problem, with a vulnerability of something they're going through, um, but they're not someone like, there's someone a little younger than you, someone you know, not as mature as you. It's really easy to like belittle someone's problems when they're not on like, not your age or not where you are in life, right? I don't know, I'm not trying to say anyone does this here, but I imagine sometimes if you're a parent and your kids come up to you, oh, like I'm really struggling, like it's pre-algebra, you're gonna be fine, right? It's gonna be okay. Like, oh, I'm struggling with like social, just, makes, just sit next to someone at lunch, you're gonna be fine, okay? Like I don't know if you've ever had that interaction where like someone comes up to you with a problem and they're like, they're stressing out, right? And they're like, oh, there's this relationship problem, and like you're 13, like it's gonna be okay. Okay, you're gonna go to middle school, your problems are fine. It's really easy to belittle the problems of someone that's not in your shoes or where you consider yourself like at a different or further place in life. Yet, God, despite having the biggest gap in intellect, experience, wisdom, and power with this this depressed prophet, doesn't bring any of that up. And his entire heart, basically what he does, um, he makes no mention of any fault of Elijah. There's no shame, there's no sense of like condemnation. In a phrase, God's response, although he doesn't explicitly say it, his response to Elijah is this. I understand. I understand what you're going through, which is incredible to think of because if you think about what it is that Elijah is struggling with, depression, loneliness, a sense of hopelessness, suicide, like God can't actually by his very nature have any of those experiences. God is hope in and of himself. He embodies the hope of the universe. He can't experience hopelessness. God, by his very nature, exists in a group of three in the Trinity. He can't experience loneliness. God can experience depression. He sees all of time from a different perspective. He can't, there's no skewing God's perspective of the world, yet he leverages his omniscience and his omnipotence in a way where he can understand what this person is going through. I myself, I, I don't need any of this stuff. I don't actually, I will never actually realize any of these, but because I love you so much and I am that powerful and that strong and that knowledgeable, I'm going to make an effort to relate to you. That's how God leverages his power and his omniscience, not to drop some fact bob and say, what is wrong with you? Don't you know in two years I'm gonna solve all this? There's none of that. He comes down to his level and responds to his needs in the most loving and compassionate way possible. And he gently reminds Elijah. So this is, honest, to summarize God's response, he gives him exercise, gives him food, gives him rest, and then he reminds him of his calling. He says, hey, I've called you to be a prophet. There are things you could be doing right now. I want you to go and anoint these kings. And then he secures his future. He says, hey, actually, I get that you think it's hopeless and that you know, this is all gonna crumble away when you die. There's someone I've picked out for you to be the next in line, to carry on your mantle. His name is Elisha. And if you know the story of Elisha, he does... Actually, it's interesting that there's recorded seven miraculous events in Elijah. And Elisha, there are 14 miraculous events. And interestingly, in the interim, before Elijah goes to heaven, Elisha asks God, give me the twice as much power. Whatever superpower you gave Elijah, give me twice as much of that. And it's interesting that he has twice as many miracles that Elijah did. And so God is reassuring him, hey, right now, here's my goal for you. I want to remind you of my purpose, that I have a plan for you. Go anoint these kings, do your prophetic duties. In the future... I have your future secured. This kid, this up-and-coming kid named Elisha, I want you to mentor him. He's going to carry on your legacy. He's going to continue on your work. 
and spread the word. And then last but not least, I want to remind you, Elijah, that you are not alone. That there are 7,000 other people that are just like you, that care about the things you care about, that are passionate about the things you're passionate about, and are all working in allegiance to me. They have not bent the knee to Baal. You are not alone in your purpose. You have colleagues, you have people that relate to you. In a word that we like to use at Rock, you have community. There are people in your corner with similar purposes and struggles as you. And in a phrase to summarize God's response to this depressed prophet, it's I understand what you're going through. Which I feel like when you are going through something, this, whatever something this may be for you, whether it's a financial struggle, relational struggle, depression, loneliness, anxiety, whatever it may be, I feel like that's probably the most comforting thing to hear. Because let's be honest, when you share your vulnerabilities with someone, most of us, unless you're talking to like a professional, aren't looking for like a quick fix. And deep down, most of us know if there's something that we're going through is big enough and bad enough, you don't even know what the solution is. You just need to share this with someone. And the most comforting thing you can hear is for someone to genuinely, honestly tell you, I understand what you are going through, and I'm here for you. And that's God's response to this prophet who had no one else to turn to, had no friends, no family, no colleagues. Everyone hated him. Most people wanted him dead. God's response to this prophet at its lowest point is, I understand, and I care for you, and I'm in your corner. And then he gently nudges him to a different perspective. I still have a purpose for you. I still have a plan for you. I still have a future for you. And not just me, but you're not alone. There are other people that share your purpose and your mindset and your faith. You are not alone. And that's the perspective I want to offer you today. If you're struggling with something and you're going through something tough in your life and you don't even know when it's going to end or, or what the solution really is, the perspective I want to offer you is that this God, this impersonal Old Testament God, looks down on whatever it is you're doing and he leverages his knowledge, his power, and his time to understand what you're going through. And then later on in the Bible, he follows through with exactly what he said. When he sends Jesus to die, Jesus experienced all of those things. For the first time in the history of the Trinity, a member of the Godhead truly experiences what loneliness is like when he's cut off from God on the, on the cross. And he experiences depression where Jesus is dying on the cross and he looks at his disciples and they're like, so sad. And it's because they don't realize what Jesus was here to do. And Jesus dies on the cross being like, oh, I don't think they actually figured it out yet. Right? Like, do they know what I came here for? And he experiences this not being able to see what happens beyond the grave. And God sends us on and says, hey, just to prove it to you that I really want to understand what you're going through, Jesus as a representative of the Godhead, we'll go through all of those things. Yet even way before Jesus, in 1 Kings chapter 19, God promises us, I understand and I care. There's no condemnation to coming to me with your struggles and your worries. I can handle it, I understand it, and I'm here in your corner. Now the second part is the permission I want to address. Now, and for most of you, this will be the hardest part of the message, and I, this is kind of like a selfie moment for me where I'm preaching to myself as well as to you. The one thing Elijah does in this situation is he asks for help. He calls out when he needs help. And unfortunately for him, the only person he has, or fortunately or unfortunately, the only person he can call out to is God because he has no friends or family, right? And for some of you, if you're going through that something, this might be the hardest ask of this entire series, to ask someone for help. And I'm talking to myself too, but I, by my, my nature, personality, whatever you want to call it, I have a really hard time asking people for help. I don't like the idea of burdening someone else with my problems. I don't like the idea of like, 
you know, when you're very vulnerable, it makes you feel a little weaker, or like, how come I don't have my life together? It's not a very uplifting moment. There's the risk you take of what if I tell this thing to this person, or I share my struggle, and they laugh, or they belittle me, or they tell someone else about it, or like they try to fix my problems and justify why it's not that big of a deal. There's a lot that comes with asking someone for help. But for the context of following Elijah's example, and for really what I think is the best way for you to get the most out of this community, if you are going through something, please call out and ask for help. Whether it's someone in this church, one of the pastors, a friend, a family member, someone you trust, ask for help. And lastly, this idea of presence. Now I'm talking to someone that isn't going through something. If you are listening to this series and you're like, I'm good, praise the Lord, I'm a good place in life, I'm talking to you right now. If someone does come to you, and really, honestly, this idea of being vulnerable at church is, is really hard. Obviously, you're not going to come to church and, and Sabbath school, you know, tell what you're going through, or over potluck, over soup and sandwiches, talk about all your struggles. But really, at our church, the best method, the best avenue for someone to, to experience um, calling out for help and the permission that I'm giving now is, is honestly probably through our small groups. And if you're plugged into our small groups, really, I imagine there's no one, there's no small group leader at our church that would, that would frown upon someone sharing their struggles or what they're going through in the space of a small group. So please, if you're not plugged into a small group, that's probably one of the best ways we as a church community can offer that level of presence. Because if you've been to church long enough, there's not a lot of places on a Saturday that we have space for that. Between here and Pollock and Sabbath School, there's not really a great place. And lastly, for presence, and really what we as a church can do for someone that's going through this time, in a word, to follow Jesus' example, to listen. God doesn't do a whole lot of talking in this interaction. He's there for him. He addresses his needs. He gives Elijah a chance to vent. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he lets Elijah explode on him. And he takes it and he listens. And there's no sense of like, well, I think you should do this. Well, if you really think about it this way, it's I'm here to listen and to strive to understand. To use a kind of a catchier quote, to talk less and smile more. And reassure whoever it is that's talking to you that I'm listening, that I care, and I'm striving to understand in the same way that this God of the Old Testament had a heart of understanding for those that are struggling. The perspective is that God understands and he cares. The permission I'm asking, or really begging, if you're going through something, is to reach out and ask for help. And really, that's the best way our community can reach out um, and provide our presence to you in listening and understanding to what you're going through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I thank you that you are the God that you are, Lord. And, and really, you're, you're, um, the narrative in the Old Testament can give you a bad rep, Father. But Lord, we see here um, an example of, of a servant of God, Lord, that for all intents and purposes had no reason to lose faith. You had done so many amazing things through him, yet through his circumstances, he loses perspective and he's going through a hard time and he comes to you in his honesty and his struggle. And in that moment, Father, we thank you that you are God that you are, Lord you care, that you understand, that through your graciousness, through your patience, through your love for us, Father, you walk with us where we are, and you understand what we are going through. Father, Lord, I think this is a tough ask for whether we are going through something or whether we're not going through something, Father. I ask that you give us the strength and the courage um, to reach out for help, Father, if we are going through something, Lord, and you give us the patience and the courage and the wisdom that if someone were to come to us in our corner, Lord, and, and be vulnerable and share with the things that we're going through, Lord, give us your your heart, Lord. Give us your patience. Give us your wisdom in those moments, Father, to remind these people, to help us to follow your example, to remind the world, these people that are going through stuff, Lord, that they are loved, 
they are cared for, that you have a purpose for them, Father, and that you will never leave them. Lord, I ask that during this week, um, these words can stick into our hearts and our minds, Father. Lord, you know who needed to hear this, Father. Um, I ask that your will be done on rock as it is in heaven. I praise in your son Jesus' name.